1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? There's an old American folk song called Billy Boy. Here's a stanza. Oh, where have you been, Billy Boy, Billy Boy? Oh, where have you been, Charming Billy? I have been to seek a wife. She's the joy of my life. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. Here's more of the song. Did she bid you to come in, Billy boy, Billy boy? Did she bid you to come in, charming Billy? Yes, she bade me to come in. There's a dimple in her chin. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. Well, as the song goes on, you learn that this young thing, she has a dimple in her chin. She makes cherry pie. She even has ringlets in her hair. But there's a problem. For Charming Billy is in love with a girl who apparently is too young to leave home. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. The line gives you the impression that Billy's girl is still a teenager. But listen to the final stanza. How old is she, Billy boy, Billy boy? How old is she, Charming Billy? Three times six and four times seven, 28 and 11. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. Whoa, Billy's girl is not such a young thing after all. Add it up. Three times six and four times seven, that's 46. Then 28 and 11? Billy's young thing is 85 years old. All of a sudden, you're concerned about Billy's girl. This folk song is talking about a dysfunctional personality. I mean, by the time you're 85, you're expected to have grown up and moved out. If you're still clutching on to mama's apron strings at 85, there's something wrong. It's time to stop being a young thing and mature. And the same is true for us spiritually. This was Paul's concern about the Christians in Corinth. This church also was full of dysfunctional believers. At this stage in the development of their faith, Paul expected them to show some maturity. Instead, they were acting like babes. They were legitimate believers, certainly, but their spiritual growth was being stunted. In fact, Paul coins a term to describe them. In chapter 3, Paul refers to the believers in Corinth as carnal. 1 Corinthians 3 begins, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Paul had hoped to speak to the Corinthians as spiritual people, but he could not. Realize, in today's world, a lot gets categorized under the banner of spiritual. The term has been broadened to include anything relating to the non-tangible world. Everything from animism to altruism, from yoga stretching to the occult, from Buddhism to belly button meditation gets labeled spiritual. It's become a catch-all term 
for anything non-material. When folks today talk of being spiritual, it can mean anything from them attending an AA meeting to being a white witch. But Paul's idea of spiritual and natural is far more specific. The spiritual man has the Holy Spirit, not just any spirit. He carries in him the mind of Christ. As Paul said back in chapter 2, verse 8, the spiritual man recognizes the Jesus who the rulers crucified as the Lord of glory. Now remember in chapter 2, Paul divided humanity into two groups, the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural man or woman is the person who doesn't know Christ. Humans are sinners by nature. We're born alienated from God. In fact, Paul says that to the natural man, the things of God are foolishness. On our own, the natural man or woman has no supranatural ability. And thus, left to themselves, they spiral toward destruction. Sin and rebellion, ignorance and prejudice just come natural for the natural man. The natural person's only input is from what's physical or what's cosmetic, or what's temporary. That's where he or she leans for their fulfillment, and this is what destines them for disappointment. But eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, what is available to the man or woman who has God's Spirit. For the spiritual man or woman is animated by the love of God, The Holy Spirit dwells inside them to convey to them the deep things of God. He gives them the desire to love God and to serve others. The Spirit of God makes us privy to the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the Christian's extra sense, His superpower. The Holy Spirit is what enables us to know God. Of course, this doesn't mean that the spiritual person will be a perfect person. He or she still lives in a body prone to sin. And when we commit the inevitable, it grieves us. For the sin that we've committed goes against the nature we've been given. That nature that loves God and loves others. This is why every Christian needs to grow in their faith. We need to learn to live out who we really are in Christ. And so, there is the natural man and there is the spiritual man. But here in chapter 3... Paul brings up another type of person. He calls this man or woman the carnal person. The Latin word carne, it means flesh. And I think Latin whenever I eat a bowl of Kathy Adams' chili. For my wife puts lots of flesh in her chili. Lots and lots of meat. Lots of flesh in that chili. That's what makes it chili con carne or chili with meat. Carnal describes a believer, a potentially spiritual person, but a believer whose life is oriented toward the flesh. He or she knows God, but they live as if they don't. Now realize, in his letters, Paul uses two very similarly sounding words in different ways. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul speaks of God writing His law on human hearts. He says, God's Spirit writes His will on tablets of flesh. The Greek word here is sarkinos, or 
what we could translate as fleshy. It means human and living as opposed to stone tablets. Now realize there's nothing intrinsically wicked about the flesh, about the human epidermis, about our bodies. God never said that there was anything evil about the human body and its functions. It was the heretical group known as the Gnostics that adopted the unbiblical dichotomy that spirit is good and that flesh is evil. And thus praying or reading your Bible is more pleasing to God than eating or having sex with your wife. That's not necessarily true. Both are holy and pleasing to God when done to His glory and honor. Enjoying a day in the park with your kids can be just as spiritual as a day of fasting and praying in the church. You see, the spiritual person doesn't stop living in the real world. He or she is still fleshy. We like to eat and sleep. We like to groom. At least some of us like to groom. We like to work out. We like the fleshy life that God has given us. Fleshy isn't sinful. Yet here, when Paul writes of being carnal, he uses a different Greek word. Rather than sarkinos or fleshy, it's sarkikos. It's from the same root word, flesh, but it carries a different sense. We could translate it fleshly. And there's a difference between fleshy and fleshly. See, it's one thing to be human, to to be in this flesh, to live a life that God has given us, to enjoy life here on the earth. But it's another to do so with our backs to God, as if all that exists is what's physical and outward, and temporal, as if the only satisfaction obtainable to us is what's to be had from this life. To live that way is to be carnal or fleshly. It's to have God, but it's to live life ignoring Him. You see, the carnal Christian possesses God's Spirit, but the Spirit doesn't possess Him. He hasn't allowed God to shape and color His outlook. Rather than live submitted to God and to the glory of God, the carnal person is still governed by what's around him and his sinful urges and his natural appetites. The course of his or her life is always drifting away from God rather than navigating towards Him. Actually, the New Testament will often speak of a person who tries to please God but does so in the flesh. As if it's up to Him and His strength. She's leaning on her own human effort rather than God's power. It's all about our pride. In fact, you can even serve God while being carnal. Sadly, you see this all the time. Christians doing things for God, even in the name of God, but not in the way that Jesus taught us to do them. When a Christian bullies or manipulates or pressures, rather than rely on God's spirit and being spiritual, they are acting carnal. And this was the problem that Paul saw in Corinth. No one was living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. No one was relying on God's power. No one was maturing in their faith. As Paul put it, they were all babes in Christ. A couple of years ago, I saw an NBC News article entitled, Big Baby Boom, Supersized Deliveries Have Doctors Worried. 
It seems that over the last few decades, there's been a spike in the birth of big babies. Recently, a Pennsylvania woman had a 13-pound, 12-ounce little girl. A German baby weighed in at 13 and a half pounds. This year, a Florida baby set a hospital record. Avery Ford was born 14 pounds and one ounce. In the last seven years, baby weights have risen 16%. But not even Avery Ford tops the British baby, little George. His name is George King. You could call him King George. He weighed in 15 pounds and 7 ounces at birth. His father, Ryan, took back the infant clothes they had and brought him home from the hospital in PJs meant for a six-month-old. At six weeks, George was 26 inches long. Today, hospitals are seeing a rash of big babies. But so are churches. There are believers in Jesus who appear to be grown, but spiritually they're still infants. Understand, it's okay to be born a big baby as long as you don't stay a big baby. We need to mature. Nowhere in the scriptures will you find playpens or pacifiers or teething toys in heaven. Between getting saved and going to heaven, God wants us to grow up. When my daughter-in-laws were pregnant, they both had received interesting baby shower gifts. I'd never seen these things. It wasn't around when I was parenting little boys. It's called a PPTP. A PPTP. The name alone gives away its purpose. It's a device that assists in the changing of a baby boy's diaper. A washable cloth cone caps off a certain part of the male anatomy. It protects the diaper changer from being fired on by an uncontrollable bladder. I can't believe it's just now being invented and being marketed to new parents. Where was this when I was changing diapers? I'm sure a regular diaper changer's first priority is to help their little boy get his bladder under control. But until then, the PPTP is a good idea. But understand, this is God's immediate goal for the Christian. He wants us to live under control, under the control of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want us to be carnal or fleshly or orientated toward the things of this world. I mean, rather than just spray about and live randomly without a clear aim, a real purpose. You didn't get that, did you? No, God wants our lives to be targeted on the things of the kingdom. He wants you and me to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You see, a spiritual person is under control, whereas a baby and a carnal Christian are two people out of control. And often we assume that our out-of-control immaturity is the result of an insufficient diet. Oh, if we were just being fed better, we'd be stronger. If the pastor did a better job of spiritually feeding his flock, then folks would grow. His sermons must lack the proper spiritual nutrients. This is how a lot of Christians like to explain their juvenile faith. 
Rather than take responsibility for themselves and for their family, it's easier for them to just blame their immaturity on the church. Well, the pastor's boring, the youth are half-hearted, the kids get neglected, and the answer becomes a change of scenery. But Paul says the problem in Corinth was just the opposite. It wasn't the lack of solid food that caused their carnality. It was their carnality that impaired them or impaired their ability to digest the food that Paul wanted to feed them. He tells them in verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. You see, the problem with the Corinthians wasn't the food in the cupboard. It was their inability to chew and to swallow that food. This limited them to sipping milk. Their own carnality created their dietary deficiency. You know, you'll find some Bible passages, they require the reader to have some teeth. You've got to chew on it. You've got to mull it over. You've got to break it down before you can digest its truth. Hebrews 5 verse 13 tells us, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In other words, the spiritual meat eaters, they've grown some teeth. By reason of use, they have sharpened their spiritual senses. Spiritual maturity takes more than just adding spiritual calories, just packing on more knowledge. It involves you applying what you learn. You take a biblical truth. You exercise it in real life. You put it into practice. That's what adds muscle to your faith. Muscles grow when you exercise them. The same is true with faith. In other words, if God is teaching you to trust Him, well, then start with your money. Give an offering. Dare to trust God and step out in faith. If he's dealing with your fears, then identify one and face it head on. If he's teaching you patience, well, then get involved with some teenagers. Hey, to grow spiritually, you have to start applying what you're learning. The carnal Christian instead, though, looks around and thinks the grass is greener, but he's not watering his own lawn. Oh, it's cute to watch a newborn nurse or suck on a bottle. But if it's an 18-year-old still chugging Similac, we would consider it despicable. And this was the problem in Corinth. Their carnality had kept them from growing up. Actually, one way to tell if you're a babe or if you're a maturing Christian is to ask, what's my spiritual diet? The carnal Christian sips skim milk. It's all his digestive tract can handle. Whereas a mature believer orders filet mignon. He enjoys hearty, meaty Bible studies. A carnal Christian enjoys Bible stories, but lacks a taste for Bible doctrine. A babe in Christ wants to know about God, but a spiritual man aspires to know God himself. The carnal Christian marvels at what God does, whereas the spiritual person wants to worship who God is. A spiritual baby likes learning biblical principles that serve his own interests, but he falls short of adopting a biblical perspective that changes his outlook. 
The carnal Christian can have a mind full of Bible facts, but a spiritual person has a heart full of love. Again, it's okay to be a spiritual babe for a season, but too many believers stay put. They never graduate kindergarten and grow on to be a mature Christian. Here in verse 3, Paul goes on to list another defining characteristic of the carnal Christian. He says, For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Envy, strife, division. You could sum those things up by saying the inability to get along with others. This is proof of a Christian's immaturity. And this is what was happening in the church at Corinth. This church was the equivalent of a spiritual nursery. The believers were acting like babies. They were demanding their own way, refusing to cooperate with each other. In the Corinthian church, when it came to attitude, there wasn't much difference with what was going on in the sanctuary and what was going on down the hall in the toddler's room. You see, carnal believers and babies have lots of similarities. For one, they whine when they don't get their way. How quickly a toddler will stick out his bottom lip and pout. I've seen it in babies, and I've seen it in carnal Christians. In fact, I think this is the number one enemy of today's church. Think about this. We live in a culture that wants to ban prayer in the Bible from the public square. A culture that condones abortion, that mocks Christian morality, that is redefining gender and marriage, that embraces false religion, that may soon brand the Bible's teaching on homosexuality as hate speech. These are huge battles, aren't they? These things should concern us. And yet churches today are quibbling and squabbling over the pettiest of stuff. Carnal Christians don't like the style of music, or the colors in the sanctuary, or the order of the service, or the length of the sermon. Friends, we're at war. The church needs a wartime mentality. Instead, we act like spoiled brats. Hey, changes are going to occur in our country very, very soon. Christianity's about to cost us. When being a Christian starts to hurt, we'll set aside our pettiness. We'll learn to love one another. But if we did it now, perhaps God would send us the revival that we desperately need. And yet carnal Christians and newborns, they have other similarities. They can't stand on their own, and thus they have to be held. This is true of a child and of a new believer. You know, when I dedicate a baby, often I have to hold its neck, have to hold its head up. The neck muscles haven't developed enough to brace the weight of its head. It has to be supported. And the same is true of the faith of a new Christian. As long as a carnal Christian is in the right company and is exposed to the right environment, he or she will grow. They'll feed off the faith of others. But remove the external props and the faith begins to flop. Carnal Christians have to learn to stand on their own. They can't always be held by others. Another problem that babies and carnal Christians have in common is a lack of discernment. They're easily deceived. 
This week I had the opportunity to spend a little time with my two-year-old grandkids. And I did the gag, you know, where you pinch the nose off their face and hold up their nose like that and show it to them. And then they put it back on their face and reattach their nose. And when I did that, they giggled and they squealed. And as soon as I pulled their nose off, they wanted it back on. And so I stuck it back on. I'm not sure whether they were just enjoying the attention or if they really believed I was yanking the nose off their face. But they seemed genuinely gullible. Little kids and carnal Christians are prone to extreme, to be extremely naive. And this is why the cultist preys on believers who know very little about the faith, who don't know the basic Bible truths, who've yet to learn the scriptures. New Christians lack spiritual discernment. It takes a while for the Holy Spirit to tutor us and to get us up to speed. In the meantime, new believers need help. Thus, those of us who've been around the block a time or two, we need to take those younger Christians under our wing. Here's another trait shared by both babes in Christ and babies. They haven't learned to feed themselves, not yet. You know, they've got to first develop the reflexes. And then learn the direction to their mouth. And then they have to get control of that big spoon. And the same is true with new Christians. At first, he or she has to be spoon-fed by pastors and by mentors. It takes time to develop the coordination and the skill to read the Bible for yourself and to draw out its truths. It doesn't just happen overnight. It takes a while for a newbie to get acclimated to a book that they may have never read seriously before. This past week, I read about Arlo. On his wedding day, his grandpa gave him and his new wife a leather Bible. Their names were embossed in gold on the front cover. Arlo and his wife, they sent a thank you note to grandpa. They acknowledged the gift, but they never really opened the Bible. In fact, Arlo had left it in the box and stuck it in the closet. Often over the next several years, every time Arlo spoke to his grandpa, Gramps would ask him how he was enjoying that Bible. Finally, out of curiosity, Arlo got the Bible out of the closet and he opened it up. And he found at the front page of the book of Genesis a crisp new $20 bill. Actually, at the beginning of every new book in that Bible, there was a $20 bill. There ended up being over $1,300 in that Bible he had never opened. There was treasures that he had forfeited because he had never opened his Bible. And this is my word to you today, friend. There are treasures that you're forfeiting, that you're leaving on the table, that that are for you, and you're, you're not accessing if you don't open your Bible. This is why the mature Christian needs to learn to feed himself on God's Word. Also, both babies and carnal Christians, they have short attention spans. And as a result, they get easily distracted. You know, a baby sees something that glitters out of the corner of their eye. They hear an attractive rattle and instantly pull away from what really matters. And the same happens to us Christians. We too get distracted. We know that life is following Jesus, but we see something that glitters just a bit or or that provides a tempting rattle and it pulls at us. We're drawn away by foolish curiosity. It's like a fish. I don't understand fish. They're supposed to have gone to school. They seem pretty dumb to me. 
I mean, a fish sees that lure in the water. Surely he's been warned. Other fish have told him. I mean, these things aren't disguised all that well. You can even see the hook on the lure. But it shimmers and it glimmers. And that fish just can't help itself. Takes the bait. His life is over. And I know believers who do the same thing. Just a little glimmer, a little shimmer. Draws them away. We need to sedate our hyperactive curiosity. We need to trust God that He knows what's best. Speaking of fish, recently Microsoft surveyed 2,000 customers and discovered the average attention span in our country has shrunk. At the turn of the century, it was 12 seconds. Today, we lose our concentration in 8 seconds. Microsoft concludes it's the effect of smartphones and internet surfing and multi-screens. It's the effect this has on our brain. But what's funny is that other scientists have determined that a goldfish's attention span is 9 seconds. That means that a goldfish has a longer attention span than the average human. Sounds fishy, but it's true. And just as babies end up the center of attention, the carnal Christian also demands the same. He loves being in the limelight. It was humorously said of Teddy Roosevelt, he wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. Sadly, I know a lot of people like that. Old Teddy had a love for the limelight. He wasn't shy about taking center stage. And this is the case with both babies and carnal Christians. They both live a very self-centered life. Just this past week, I noticed again our selfie culture. Everywhere you turn these days, folks are taking and posting their selfies. I mean, people focus the lens of their camera not on the beautiful vistas in front of them, not on the intriguing portraits around them, but on themselves. Surprise, surprise, we're preoccupied with ourselves. You know, it's interesting that of all the photos taken today by adults ages 18 to 24, they say that 30% are now selfies. Some observers worry that the family photo album The book that was treasured by past generations, a catalog of memories that include our relatives and our friends, are going to be replaced soon by pages of self-snapshots. Welcome to the selfie generation. It's another example of our childishness and our selfishness. Hey, to understand a carnal Christian, just walk down the hall and check out the nursery. Now, it's interesting to me how Paul phrases the ending of verse 3. It's a question. He says, are you not carnal in behaving like mere men? He infers here that Christians are not supposed to just be mere men or mere women. You know, we learned it last time that we have supernatural powers. That we have the Holy Spirit living within us. We've been supernaturally enabled. Remember the astonishing words at the end of chapter 2. We have the mind of Christ. We're now privy to God's wisdom and His power. 
what the human eye does not see and the ear does not hear and the mind cannot grasp, the riches of Christ is conveyed to us by God's Spirit. And this means that God expects more from us. Rather than act carnal or be natural, we're called to be spiritual people. Folks influenced by the Holy Spirit. God holds us to a higher standard than mere men. And this is how I think of being a father. For neither is a dad a mere man. A father is something special in the mind and in the plan of God. As a dad, I am God's representative to my children. God even gives me His name. Just as God reveals Himself to us as Father, He calls on me to be a father to my kids. And there is nothing selfish or self-centered or self-absorbed about being a dad. It is just the opposite. You see, the first requirement for being a good dad is to grow up. Being a child's father is the most sacrificial task most of the men in this room will ever be called on to do. A father's job is to lead and influence his family. And how can he, at least in a godly way, unless he is first under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit? Seems apparent from our text that carnal Christians make for lousy dads. How can you be a babe in Christ and also be a father? A dad is more than a mere man. In a CNN article by Bill Bennett entitled, Why Men Are in Trouble, Bill explains how men in America have lost their way today. Bennett says that in 1960, men earned 60% of the college degrees. In 2006, it was down to 43%. Today, women earn more degrees than men by 3 to 2. In 1950, 5% of working-age men were unemployed. In 2010, the percentage was at an all-time high of 20%. Today, the out-of-marriage birth rate in America is 40%. 27% of all kids now live in a home without their father. Today, 18 to 30-year-old men spend more time playing video games than 12 to 17-year-old boys. Bennett draws this conclusion. If you don't believe the numbers, just ask young women about men today. You will find them talking about prolonged adolescence and men who refuse to grow up. I've heard too many young women asking, where are the decent single men? There is a maturity deficit among men. Apparently, this is not only a problem today, it was the situation in Paul's day among the Corinthians. There were men in this church who were acting like boys. Realize the difference between a man and a boy. It has nothing to do with age. No, a man takes responsibility, whereas a boy tries to shun it. A man answers to a higher authority. He realizes he's accountable to do things a certain way, even the right way, even God's way. He understands that life is not a piece of cake. He's not expecting a handout. 
He trusts God and he works hard. This is what constitutes a man. Instead, boys opt for shortcuts. Hey, boys want a wife and a job and a house and kids that aren't a lot of work. They might as well believe in Santa Claus. He doesn't exist either. Here's what a boy thinks. I want money, just not a regular job. I want to own a business, but without the long hours it requires. Oh, I want sex, but not the commitment of a marriage and a family. I want a cool church. I just don't want to have to give anything or do anything. And when that boy becomes a dad, it's trouble. Boys love their toys more than their families. They deny it, but they do. A boy drives a nice car while his wife drives around in the beater. A boy purchases a big screen while his kids lack the money to sign up for Little League. A boy goes out and buys a guitar while his wife struggles to make do without a washer and a dryer. Don't be a boy! It's time for some of us to man up. Or as Paul would put it, don't be a mere man. The last thing your family needs is a carnal dad. We need to man up and live our lives under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit. Dad, here's how to be a spiritual man for your God and for your family. Remember the similarities we discussed between babes and carnal Christians? Well, live a different kind of life. Be more than a mere man. First, stop whining. Don't whine when you don't get your way. Work to change the situation. Pray for God to change the situation. Trust God to work all things together for your good and His glory. But whatever you do, don't whine and complain. Second, learn to stand on your own. Grow a backbone. Have some convictions, Dad. Take a stand. Third, develop some discernment. You need to cut some spiritual teeth. Chew on the Scriptures. Settle what you believe. Fourth, learn to feed yourself. Guys, don't you depend on your wife to do the heavy spiritual lifting in your family. It's not her job. It's the man's duty to lead his family spiritually. And if he's going to be successful at it, he has to know his Bible and he has to hear from his God. Fellas, if you don't have a devotional life where you open your Bible and you listen for God every day, it's time to get busy. Why would your wife and kids want to follow you if they can't see you following Jesus? Fifth, develop some attention span. At least longer than a goldfish. A big part of being a man is the ability to overcome distractions and to stay focused on your goal for longer than eight seconds. Concentrate on what really matters. And then six, stop thinking It's all about you, because it's not. When you sign up to be a dad, everything changes. It's now all about mom and the kids, giving them a better life. Don't be a selfie dad. That's an oxymoron. Before I got married, I I didn't realize how selfish I was. In retrospect, my little world revolved all around me. I thought I was being unselfish, but then I'd go home and take care of myself. Oh, but then I got married. 
Nobody forced me to. I did it of my own volition. And all of a sudden, I found out I couldn't come home after work and just veg out and take care of myself and do what I wanted. My wife needed me. I had to be a little less selfish. But then I had kids. And I didn't stop at one. Again, nobody forced me. It it was my own choice. I had four of those kids. And oh my, unselfish was now the operative word. The moment I walked in the house, I had new responsibilities. And it didn't even stop on the weekends. Those kids needed their daddy 24-7. You know, one day it dawned on me, God didn't want me to be selfish. God wanted me to be like Jesus. And so guess what he did? He gave me a Kathy and a Zach and a Nat and a Nick and a Mac. God and life have been weaning me off of me. And that's what being a dad is all about. It's about growing up. It's about being spiritual and not carnal. My question to us today would be this. Are you not carnal? And behaving like mere men? If so, stop it. Don't be a mere man. God has called you to be so much more. Don't be a boy. Don't be a baby. Be a man. In fact, be a spiritual man. In Jesus' name, amen.